0: This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zoopans Markets. And I got to tell you, Chris, I'm pretty excited about this. I've been stopping by Zupans there on Burnside a little bit more and more. Uh, because they're constantly updating the different things that they have going on. And one of those is their poke bar.
1: Uh, There are a lot of great things going on at that store.
0: Poke bar, five varieties of poke, seafood, salads, three types of rice and toppings. You can create your own poke bar. It's awesome. i got to point this out, though. It's only available at their Burnside, but expanding to the other locations in 2017.
1: Also, the other thing that you got to keep in mind, it's football time. And they have some incredible—I love their house-made guacamole, and their pico de gallo is fantastic. So check the football schedule and sync it up with Zupan's as well. The other
0: thing that you should check out is their beer and wine tastings. They have them in their store every Friday and Saturday, and wine-tasting events— in Cellar Z at their Burnside and Lake Grove locations. And the easiest way to, to find out about all these things going on is checking out zoopans.com. They have this new, brand new website. You can find out what's fresh and new, browse their recipes. I would recommend, I've started following Zoopans on instagram chris
1: very nice
0: yeah and they feature some beautiful beautiful items and it's given me maybe a hundred different ideas of things i need to do on the weekend so check out their brand new website zoopans.com you can order online catering sandwiches floral delivery it's all there at zoopans.com This is right at the Fork Portland's Food Scene Podcast on uh it's not the first episode of the year, Chris, but it is the first time we are recording of the year.
1: Yeah, we were running out because we had bad weather days last week. Yeah. And uh so we're so here we are doing four Episodes in one day,
0: right? We just banged them all in. It's the
1: most we've ever done in one day. Yeah,
0: and uh, we we both made it through treacherous conditions just to get down here because uh, the one plow that Portland uh, actually <laughs> owns did not get it on our route.
1: I was behind on 26 yesterday. I came in for yeah. for a, uh, for a uh, friends and family opening at XLB last night in prep uh, leading into this. I was on 26 behind a woman doing seven miles an hour. Yeah. And I'm talking 26 by Elsie. Right. You know, where it was an ice pack for 25 miles, and she... So I was in car number two, and there were 30 cars behind us, most SUVs who were just dying to move. Yeah. No way to pass. Right, safely. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get any traction because we, there's no momentum when you're at 7 right. miles no, that's, an hour.
0: That's the tough thing about that is, like, she needs to – that's what makes this just so much <laughs> worse is I, I have to, like, sometimes I've had to back down my own, like, street because it's a slight incline because the second you have to slow down, it's over.
1: Yeah, and that's – she didn't understand that, and I – just thought, man, I'm pissed off because yeah. I don't have four-wheel drive, but I can't imagine everybody behind us, everybody's the same thing. And she could not pull over. I understand where she couldn't pull over. It right. was it was rough. I still can't believe these streets are like this. So we're doing four podcasts. I think I got three or four hours sleep last night. Huh. I wish I had more, but I think I spent a little of the night uh, fretting over the loss of the Affordable Care Act and
0: pre-existing conditions. Sure, I saw some of those posts.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so we have to, I'm really excited about this, uh, this episode today. Um, it's been, we, we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks, but Kevin Alexander from Thrillist published a three-part series uh, just straddling 2016 and 2017 mm-hmm. uh, about the upcoming or the current, or what's about to happen, restaurant bubble. And uh, it dawned on me that it was a year ago that we had Kurt Huffman on the show.
0: Yeah, talking about talking about he didn't call it. I don't know that Kurt called it a bubble.
1: No, but he said it's the worst time yeah. in Portland to open a restaurant. And he made a prediction
0: prediction that we'll see some uh, closings for restaurants that will make a lot of people kind of go what? Right, and we and did. So
1: we did. We saw Smallwares closed. We saw Cocotte closed. I actually spoke with Kat Lesur, uh texting the other night and. She said, since Cocote closed, her finances are much better than when, they, when it was open. Right. And this relates to some of what we're, what we're going to talk about. And I thought it would be a good idea. Um, uh, coincidentally, I happened to be talking to my cousin, Jim Angelus, um, last week, who owns Bacon Bacon in San Francisco, and he was telling me that he was closing down one of his locations. Mm-hmm. He had previously closed down three food trucks. And it relates to what's Kevin, what Kevin is talking about, and Kevin's based in the Bay Area. Jim's down there, so we're not – this is a larger issue than just Portland. Right. Uh, the restaurant. Uh, he, and Kevin cites Portland as some of the, um, the, the central – make a note of that. Mm-hmm. Kevin cites Portland as kind of the, the nucleus for a lot of where the, these things have happened. But I thought it would be – it was appropriate to talk to Jim – my cousin about closing his Bacon Bacon place in uh, San Francisco just to get an idea of the challenges that he's had and there's kind of a second degree of separation issue here we have Kurt Huffman on the on the podcast to discuss it and uh, so this is how this works I was uh, my cousin Jim used to work years ago in Connecticut with Rick Gencarelli at Miramar in Westport Yeah. Years later, Jimmy Jim came up here, and I was doing the usual, let's do a three-day Portland food crazy thing. Yeah. And he's appropriate for it because he loves to eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, along the way, he said, I want you to meet my friend Rick, um, who used to work in Vermont. We used to work together in Connecticut. He shows up at Porquet No. We, we become friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I introduce Rick to Kurt. Kurt Huffman, yeah. So they start Lardo. Then... Uh, subsequently Jim wants to open this food cart, food truck in San Francisco, Bacon Bacon. Rick helps him with the original menu. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the original Bacon Bacon menu is similar to Lardo. Oh sure, okay. And so so Jim gets his business going. Jim's got, then he opens a a cafe, two more food trucks, another cafe by AT&T Park. At the same time, Rick goes we all we some of us know that story first lardo on hawthorne brick mm-hmm. and mortar then another one downtown then another one and one of those closes right. jim's closing some of his so i thought it would be kind of um interesting if we kind of pasted it all together a little bit and i thought jim was a little bit of the nucleus of this and uh we've talked about him on the podcast over the years so it's it's nice to have him on the podcast kevin alexander is a national writes nationally for thrillists mm-hmm. so we're we're really honored to have him on the podcast and always Kurt Huffman as well with Chef's Table here, uh, a big part of many many of the restaurants that, uh, that people enjoy so much in Portland and a uh, really smart, knowledgeable guy. So um, we start the podcast with... Uh, well, right after we, we introduce Kevin and Kurt, we'll go to my cousin Jim mm-hmm. and go
0: from there. So... Um, I'll diagram this out for everybody and post some notes in there. So you
1: can... <laughs> no, but I just thought it would be, there was a reason to have my cousin no, it, it, it 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 gives
0: It gives some very specific context nationally to what we're talking about. And, and you know, the, I think the, Kevin talks about Portland being the golden child, I think was the term he used, when it looks of, of how the country looks at Portland and this rise of the fo- food culture and restaurants. Right. And then that we're probably going to be at the forefront of what he calls this this bubble bursting.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting that it's happening everywhere. It's not just here. And it's really in the large cities like San Francisco where it's going to be more evident. Mm -hmm. So uh, here we
2: go. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Leanne Bach of M Realty. Choosing the right realtor can make or break the buying or selling experience in real estate. Leanne Bach is in tune with the ever-changing Portland landscape, especially as it pertains to our food and restaurant world. Why not work with someone who's in step with you and has years of experience to work on your behalf? Find Leanne at leannebach.com. L-E-A-N-N-E-B-A-C-H dot com. The Portland Auto Show. Order tickets now for the Auto Show Sneak Peek for Charity Preview Party on January 25th. Eat great food and enjoy open bars while browsing over 600 models with proceeds going to seven great Portland area charities. Your $100 tickets for a night out on the town are tax deductible. Visit PortlandAutoShow.com now and look for the sneak peek tab. Zupans, unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets and by Portland Food Adventures. Did you know you can eat and drink your way through Europe with chefs like Atala's Jose Chesa and Lardo's Rick Giancarelli? Join right at the fork host Chris Angeles and his great chef friends for these trips of a lifetime to Barcelona and Tuscany in September and October. Get to PortlandFoodAdventures.com and click on the blog tab to see pricing and itineraries.
0: And sound speed. Sound speed.
1: All right, so we're, we're pleased to have uh, Kevin Alexander of Thrillist, who just put together a f- fantastic three-part series on the, the upcoming restaurant bubble. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. It was a series that I noted was, was being shared by a lot of restaurateurs and chefs here in Portland. And interestingly enough, it was exactly a year ago uh, this week that we had Kurt Huffman on the podcast for our first episode of the year, I believe, where, Kurt, you had mentioned that 2016 was just a horrible time to open a restaurant in Portland, and, and uh, so we thought putting together what you said in 2016 a year later, what Kevin's writing about, it'd be interesting to have a discussion about it here, starting off 2017. Welcome, Kurt. Thanks, Chris. So, we have a uh, little clip to, that we'd like to play of my cousin who owns Bacon Bacon in San Francisco, Uh, and just interestingly enough, when we were putting this podcast together last week, arranging to do this, actually we arranged to do it two weeks ago, we're now snowed out and iced out and doing it again, Uh, or actually for the first time, but we're in the studio, we're trying again. Um, But in the last week, uh, had a conversation with Jim, who's had a really nice thriving business in, um, in San Francisco, well, maybe not thriving so much, uh, and he'll explain what happened but i just wanted you to to uh, listen to this and then uh, we'll talk about it right after good morning jim
3: good morning chris
1: you know it's great to have you on this podcast you've been referenced a few times over these couple of years and it's good to finally have your your voice you're a celebrity you've been on all sorts of things bacon bacon has been on saturday night live and uh, you've been on, what shows have you been on so far? <laughs> oh,
3: well, thanks for the introduction. You know, I I was on Chopped. I was on CNN's Making It in America business program. Eat Street uh, Food Network. or Travel channels, paradise, food,
1: and, and the amazing, uh, a couple others. Not the amazing. I already blew it for the first time this year. But the interesting thing is, you're not really a trained chef. Although, in running Bacon Bacon, you've become a pretty good maker of the Bacon Bacon Fair.
3: Correct. No culinary training, <laughs> just a, a guy who's grown up in restaurants, loves to cook, loves the guest interaction, and loves bacon.
1: <laughs> those are good things to, um, those are good combinations. Um, but, and, and I covered it earlier, how, how we met Kurt, who's here with us in the studio, or is going to be here with us in the studio, how there's an indirect connection through Rick Gencarelli, from, from me to Rick to Kurt to you, to the whole thing. So at All, any rate,
3: all good food runs through Rick Gencarelli, that's I,
1: all. I think so. You know. and, and bacon, too. Yeah. So very quickly, because we've used up a lot of time chit-chatting here, we wanted to talk about, you mentioned last week that you were going to be closing your one of two brick-and-mortar locations for Bacon Bacon. You've also shut down some food trucks.
3: Yeah, I, 2016 and the first few days of 2017, I totally scaled back operations from three food trucks and two cafes, and today I have one little cafe.
1: Can you cite, is there any one thing that you can cite that has been your your biggest challenge that caused that to happen?
3: You know, in growing and getting investors, I think a, a couple things happened was being undercapitalized. I think being in a city and an environment where real estate is pretty expensive, and for the storefronts getting in on a lease that I probably didn't do enough homework with, and the rising costs of restaurant, labor, and food. So it was a lot of those factors contributed to it, and also uh, learning along the way. You know, I, I didn't know what it was like to be running a company with 38 employees, and going to now seven feels a lot more comfortable.
1: Yeah, it's probably... Well, even if you had done the research on the real estate, you, you couldn't always foresee what was going to happen, I guess, unless you signed a long-term lease. But still that the the what you're paying for the lease has to factor in with food costs and labor costs and those things change so uh, unless you're a guy like Kurt Huffman uh, maybe it's hard to do that research and when you start small and you get a little ambitious especially in a city like San Francisco where you said things are kind of expensive they're probably the most expensive there right
3: things are really expensive I you know, it feels good to have people approach you about growing and the ego and being a person that has a lot of employees and trucks and cafes. It it felt great. But at the end of the day, I wasn't making any money. So something had to shift and I had to take drastic measures to ultimately save my business. And the part of the business that has a great lease, great staff, and stays really busy is my little original cafe. So Going back to basics this year.
1: Right, and that started out as the commissary for what your, was your first food truck, correct? You needed somewhere to prepare, and you chose a spot not far from where you lived, and uh, ironically enough, that's what's left.
3: Exactly. This was my second little commissary. I rented a place in South San Francisco and before this became available to me, and um, I opened while we were prepping and closed and hopped on the truck and went and did the truck, and then notice this place could survive on doing a little of its own business and then the menu expanded and we expanded hours and you know it's seven days a week and uh five four days we do breakfast and lunch and the other couple days we we do dinner
1: well i'm interested to see what you're going to say at this time next year after a year of something a little less aggressive and so you know, a little more manageable, and now you'll be able to focus on making that the best it can be, and and creating more bacon aroma for everybody in the neighborhood.
3: Well, I look forward to it as well. I think there'll be less gray hair. I think the family will be happier. They'll have a less stressed husband and dad, and um, you know, less is more.
1: Good. Well, let's, I, I let's can tell you happens. this. I, I I wish you luck on the gray hair thing. You know, you and I share the genes. <laughs> so good luck with that.
3: Well, thanks, Chris.
1: All right, Jim. Thanks for thanks for joining us
3: this morning. Thanks for having me. It's it's all it's an honor to be on.
1: By the way, where do people find you at Bacon Bacon SF? Is that it?
3: BaconBaconSF.com. SF And when you're in San Francisco, we're in the upper Haight. You just got to walk up the hill, burn off a couple calories, and come chow uh, the best breakfast burrito in san francisco and
1: i will agree with that i'm not a big breakfast burrito person but when i had yours and i'm not just blowing smoke up your ass when i had yours i I loved it it was the best burrito i've ever had thank you so i guess we'll lead with kurt you kind of cited the types of things that jim was talking about last year that those things were going to happen that rents were going to be a problem and and of course we were talking about what kevin mentioned in the article was the increased cost of labor and how that's going to factor in.
4: Yeah, and it's just, I guess, when you and I talked last, it was more, my, my insight, or I don't even know if it's insight, but my, my commentary had to do more with having my ear to the ground here uh, in Portland and just talking to people. And, um, and even this past week, for instance, two different uh, people reached out to me who were closing their businesses, uh, places that have been open for, you know, 10 years. And they're closing them down. And so, you know, there just seemed to be a spike about a year ago of people just needing to get out. Um, and so that was, you know, that was my feedback at the time was just, man, I feel like this is a, this seems to be a tough time. And whatever that aggregate of, of, you know, circumstances is that leads to it. And I think is something that, you and I talked about. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big believer in rent being a, a predominant factor. And, closing places down because it's such a tiny item on your, your P and L certainly doesn't help if you're paying, you know, $25,000 a month, uh, in like you would probably have to right next to AT&T park in San Francisco. But, um, you know, when you consider how hard it is to get uh, kitchen labor in, uh, increase in minimum wages, uh, the, uh, the accumulation of all these different additional expenses like, uh, sick leave, um, uh, you know things like that it it does make it hard and uh, and things are only getting harder because now we're starting to see the first impact of the increase on uh, on the minimum wage increase on our raw products and that's something that we're uh, you know we're usually locked into uh, contracts uh, where the produce uh, middleman here in Portland for instance has their rates locked in with their supplier uh, so they we actually see there's a lag in seeing how much you know, lettuce is going to go up, or whatever is going to go up. We know it's going to go up, and we're going to be finding that out really, really soon. And so that that kind of makes it even more spooky because that's the one thing we're just not sure about. Right. What what are the pass-through costs? But you know, it's a terrible. And then of course we just went through one of the worst snowstorms in a long time here in Portland. And I've gotten additional calls this week from people. more than one. More than one. It just went <laughs> on and on and on. And, and you know, in, uh, in our city was completely incapable of, of managing it uh, as kind of like a a business crisis so you know we're gonna see a lot of closures this year but I thought most of the stuff that Kevin talked about in his article were really interesting and really accurate and he and I had a couple of disagreements that we can go through but in general it's a really hard time uh, uh, for restaurants.
1: Kevin what was it that caused you to want to write that article did, and and were the hypotheses that you had going in were they were they borne out with your research did you did you find out a lot of new things that were surprising?
5: Yeah, I didn't really have. I I wasn't planning on writing the story, to be completely honest. I was going around the country for an unrelated project, eating a bunch of burgers, and I ended up just being in 19 cities over the course of the year. And what I kept seeing, and when I talked to restaurateurs and chefs and a like I, I started seeing the same sort of thing. So that sort of created the, the first part of the series, uh, the hot new food town template, which obviously like a lot of people stole from Portland 2006, but like the, um, so that kind of, and, and one sort of led into the next and, but by the end, you know, over the course of the year, by the end, it was always the, The places, those sort of casual fine dining sit down restaurants with the, the more ambitious menus that those were always the places that were closing and and, in every city I was going to. And, um, you know, I think Olivia in uh, Austin, which was like one of their signature restaurants, you know, one of their restaurants that really put them on the dining scene on a national scale in 2009. And when that, and that turned into a fast, casual fried chicken concept uh, from their chef was one of those, like, crystallizing points for me. But just, uh, it was just, you know, you, you kept hearing the same story from uh, chefs all over the country, and it was just, the, you know, there's a glut of restaurants, we can't find any cooks, labor costs are going up, uh, rent increases, and, you know, and all of these things were sort of combining, but you weren't hearing about it because there was so much money coming in from outside investors. Um, you know, because it, it was such a cool thing to be a part of a restaurant. It's such a, a if you have money, it's such a, a powerful thing. So I think a lot of people didn't realize just what a bubble it was because, places continue to open at such a brisk pace. And so all of those factors kind of combined, and, and, and I started to see it, and I said, like, why isn't someone writing about this? Because people were writing about it locally. You know, you'd you'd sort of say, oh, like, why are all these places in Atlanta closing? Why are all these places in Portland closing? But um, the, the dots weren't being connected on a national level, and I think, luckily for me, because I was traveling around anyway. I got to see it from this perspective, and, and and that's why I wanted to write about it.
1: I think there's a, at least here in Portland, while there have been quite a few places closing, a lot are opening, so I think, I don't have the numbers at my disposal, but I think there's probably in 2016 a net increase in new restaurant, or in restaurants, and I'm going to guess, I'm going to throw this out there, this is all fueled by not necessarily going on right now, but years of food tv of food being the new sports and uh that's my feeling anyway everybody's got to open the next new thing and then you've got a lot of people who have worked for other people and here in portland we have food carts it's it was a lower cost of entry i don't know if that's the case anymore is it kurt are we now in seattle and san francisco territory or approaching
4: it yeah maybe see maybe Seattle I mean San francisco is a whole different it's a whole different uh paradigm and we're we have an event space down there now um and so I've looked much more closely at the restaurant uh world in san francisco and it's 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 not a normal <laughs> it's not a normal market by any stretch of the imagination um and I would be terrified to open a a a traditional restaurant down there and i and i think if you look at the types of restaurants opening in san francisco it's either prohibitively expensive places that uh, that know that they can get outrageous dollars from all of these remarkably wealthy people who live down there or these very high high concept fast casual places that um, that can also you know charge a, a top dollar amount but with the kind of population density and disposable income you have down there can just drive top top end dollars so
1: but we're noticing it here in Portland that prices are going up and a lot of us are I think you read articles like Kevin's and you hear things like this and you start to understand a little more why we're going to be paying higher prices and that it's OK to keep people in business.
4: Well, that's the hope, right? You hope that as a restaurant owner, you hope that people are willing to pay more because that's the great. You know when people when when you're legislating much higher minimum wages, the presumption is that people will be happy to pay significantly more money for the same thing. Otherwise, industry just is going to take a beating, right? Because you can't pay somebody $15 an hour when you're barely making money and not dramatically increase your prices. So the assumption, I guess, from you know, people in the Oregon legislature or the California legislature is that, hey, there's tons of elasticity, right? People just pay, no problem, $14 for a hamburger. I guess people, they're just assuming people are going to pay it. On the restaurant side, we're just not assuming that's the case. So the question is, how do we, how do we get ahead of this? And so, and Portland's the same as Seattle, San Francisco. We're going towards fast casual because we're trying to be ahead of it. Uh, or we're going to, you know, roll the dice on charging people a lot more uh, for sit-down dinners than we would have done before and maybe bringing back certain amenities that we wouldn't have had and hope that that can survive. But I agree with Kevin that it's, you know, the, there's a crunch specifically on that kind of ambitious sit-down uh, you know, chef-driven restaurant that is really particular and uh, and a little bit troubling.
5: Yeah, and the, and I think that there's a little bit of hypocrisy on the side of the customer because, as Kurt was just saying, uh, you know, and, especially, and and on the side of the food media in general too, because we'll sort of beat the drum of like you got to pay the back of the house more and you got to have these, uh, you know you got to have these increases and all of this sort of stuff and then we'll also, you know, take a place to town for having an $18 cheeseburger, mm-hmm. right? And so there's there's hypocrisy there, but there's also hypocrisy on the side of the customer who uh, you know is like in theory in favor of all of these increases because they, you know, are consider themselves a progressive and and all of this stuff. But then in practice, when they go to the restaurant and they see these prices and then they're saying, well, I'm not going to go here anymore. I can get cheaper food down the lane. You, that, you know, you know what I mean? There needs to be that overall sort of acceptance. And if there's not, if you're only kind of like paying lip service to it in theory, and then you're not willing to pay the higher prices, um, then you're going to be stuck in this point. And as Kurt said, like, then then more and more restaurants will take a beating uh, because they're just – people won't be willing to pay their prices.
1: Yeah, and it's not as though there are just only casual, finer dining restaurants. There's all sorts of opportunities. So when when it comes time to decide where am I going to go tonight, and I'm guilty of this and I'm no different than anybody else, I don't know if I feel like doing that. I'm just gonna go spend fifteen bucks somewhere, twenty bucks I can sure because I've gotten to the point where it's like and I've lost a little weight, I'm learning that tomorrow, where I ate isn't necessarily it's not the most important thing. I just get through to tomorrow. <laughs> so um, I think that's a lot of the mindset of people, and it's gonna it's there are gonna be changes going forward, and I've still we've talked about this. We have a few podcasts that we uh, had last year. Um, with Scott Dolich and uh, Andy Fortgang of LaPigeon talking about their models. And Greg Denton at Ox talked about uh, what he was going to do at SuperBite. Right. How's that working at SuperBite?
4: Well, Which, uh, by the way, we should explain what, quickly what they're doing. So, oh boy. And this is the. I'll, I'll try to be as concise as I can. Can, um, I, can
1: I be really concise? Maybe yes, I can. you can. Very simply. There ha- the people, the back of the house is bringing food out so that there are different wage issues with that. And so um, so the people in the back of the house and the front of the house, it, it helps equalize it a little bit. Right. And I've had good experiences there with that. I really have. And I, I like seeing the people in the back of the house bring my food out. It's nice.
4: Yeah. And the whole idea is that people, you're we're creating hybrid roles. So state bird provisions in San Francisco did it. The chef brings you the food. When they bring you the food, they're doing something that's traditionally done by a server. So now your kitchen staff can qualify uh, for tips that otherwise you're not allowed to mandate. Um, but it's juggling stuff around. I, you know, I think it's great, uh, but I don't. You know, I'm not sure if that's the solution moving forward. Uh, I happen to be a, a strong uh, opponent of uh, eliminating tipping. I think it's presumptuous. You tried I, it, so
1: you have yeah. you have good uh, a nice frame of reference. You actually gave it a big whirl.
4: Yeah, and and, and the and the narrative that's going on right now with uh, you know somebody like Danny Meyer who's equating uh, tipping and conflating it with the traditions of racial discrimination and so forth. Although that may be historically, you know, a hundred years ago something you know, over the last, you know, the tradition of tipping in America as it's evolved, I think it's a it's a really inappropriate uh, uh, and, and, and silly thing to kind of shame people into advocating for this elimination of tipping. I mean, you know, what Danny is doing effectively is going to be advocating for the largest paid decrease in the history uh, of the restaurant enterprise, uh, restaurant industry, pardon me, uh, on the front of house side, because essentially what we're saying is, we're going to dramatically decrease what people take home on the front of house to mildly increase what we're uh, paying people in the kitchen. And the better way for me to ask it is why don't you just let the people make what they're making in the front of house and uh, figure
1: out a way to make And it figure me. out
4: a way to, to pay people uh, in the back of house. Uh, it's especially troubling when somebody like Danny has just sold his uh, Shake Shack thing for $500 million. You'd think okay. that he'd have the ability to pay an extra buck or two in the back. Uh, to make his conscience feel better about wage disparity, but
1: but he's passing it on to the consumer. He's right? passing
4: it to the consumer, and he's doing it kind of you know packaged in this. If you don't do it, then somehow you are uh, you're shamefully supporting uh, one of the you know cultural uh, traditions that was involved in in slavery and racial discrimination. It's just like wow, that's quite a package to digest. Um, but I think there's so many issues right now with with independent restaurants and. Um, w- one thing I hope is that uh, the pressure that we're getting with minimum wage increases, rent increases, labor shortages, and so forth, where we're having to pay more, uh, is are, are people going to continue to make choices that I think define part of our industry in the last 20 years? Are, are people going to continue wanting to support places that buy more expensive product, which means local product, which means sustainable product? Are they going to put their money where their mouth is? Because now there's a lot more money you've got to put where your mouth is. Because if you wanna if you wanna uh, you know, support a place that has hand picked whatever, you know, from the Willamette Valley, uh, you've gotta you know, you've gotta pay for it. And,
1: and I would imagine it's a tough fight to get a creative chef who has an ego involved to start you know, okay, no, you're gonna you're gonna source this from Cisco and you're not gonna be talking to your farmer anymore.
4: Yeah, it would be a paradigm shift that would be terrible. Yeah, I mean, but for everybody. For everybody. So you hope that people, you know, kind of uh, walk the talk, and uh, and that's going to be a four-year conversation at least in Oregon. You know, four years from now, we're paying fifteen fifty an hour, and uh, man, I hope that I hope that people are going to continue to 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 vote with their their dollars that they want to support the industry that's now like at the forefront of all these progressive social. You're expecting
1: common sense voting.
0: (laughs) I don't I don't know about that. We just got out of the holidays, Chris. And for many people, that's the most wonderful time of the year. But for me, the most wonderful time of the year also includes the time where the Portland Auto Show happens. Sure, you could take your family to all sorts of different lots around town to look at vehicles, but you could go to one place and see them all and it's the Portland Auto Show.
1: There's a lot going on, and in the middle of winter, what better than to get out with your family or your significant other or yourself? Just get out of the house and go enjoy... Some uh, go enjoy a day at the auto show. You can also test drive the cars. They have 11 different manufacturers outside where you can test drive cars as well as just seeing them. Over 600 models at the auto show.
0: Very nice. Uh, So you can ride and take drives. You can test drive. And uh, you were telling me a little bit about this charity party, which is a sneak peek. Is that right? It's pretty cool. The Wednesday before the show. Yeah, what is that? Uh, January 25th.
1: You can see the show before all the, the masses arrive and see it on a night where you can get dressed up a little bit, great food, open bars throughout the whole show, and uh, it's a two and a half hour charity event. Uh, proceeds go to seven great charities in the Portland metro area. It's really a cool night, and uh, and it's tax deductible too.
0: And then the the show itself happens January twenty sixth through the twenty ninth at the Oregon Convention Center, and it's pretty pretty sure that you're going to be wandering around there, right, Chris?
1: Yeah, you might just catch me. But the other place, which would be great to catch me, is Portland Auto Show's Instagram because I'll be posting some photos there.
0: And that would be at Portland Auto Show on Instagram. And of course, don't forget to mark your calendars and visit PortlandAutoShow.com today. I'm not really a, a an envious man, Chris, but I got to tell you that uh, what you got going on at the end of 2017 really makes me wish I, I had more time or that I could squeeze into your luggage and go with you to Europe.
1: We're going to Italy with Rick Giancarelli, uh Tuscany region, October 1st. And uh, we already have seven people signed up for that. Um, as a matter of fact, we've got six lovely ladies uh, going as well. And we have uh, we have couples on the way. So uh, that's going to be a really fun trip, eating with Rick Giancarelli throughout The Tuscany region. We also have one before that, uh, which is September 20th. uh, Our third trip with Jose Chesa of Itaula and Chesa and 180 uh, to Barcelona, uh, September 20th. And uh, that is an incredible journey to experience Barcelona. Through the eyes and palate of Chef Jose, Um, he went to culinary school there at 15, and he knows his way about Barcelona. So a lot of folks are going to Barcelona, but you'll never see and eat Barcelona the way we do.
0: It's just great experiences, Chris. So here's what you do. Check out the trips online, portlandfoodadventures.com under the blog tab, where you can also get seats to upcoming PFA's uh, local events. Those include Dame and Quantrell. Those are on the website as well. Trips, the best local food events. It's what Chris loves doing, and many of you do too.
1: Kevin, what, across the country, are you seeing the same types of wage issues? Is it is it in a, just the larger markets? I mean, what's going on in places like Tulsa and some of the other smaller markets?
5: Yeah, I mean, and this is something that Kurt and I talked about a little bit, um, but the... Obviously in the places with the tip credit, um, there's a little bit of a and I, I won't say a little bit of a difference and I'll let I'll let Kurt really really dig into it if he wants, but the the issues are
4: <clears throat>
5: you know this when I say that this is a bubble, like this isn't like the national economy where in 2008 you know it bursts all at once, the stock market plummets and you see it affect everywhere. but obviously the pockets in which, um, the bubble is really bursting the most quickly are the ones uh, that we've sort of talked about that are in, at the the height of the food scene. So that's the San Francisco's, the Portland's, um, the Seattle's, the and the, the East Coast cities, a lot of the places that don't have the tip credit especially. But I will say that even in places like... Uh, new orleans i can't speak to tulsa i was in oklahoma city in el reno but i i can't speak to that specifically but what you're seeing there is a lot of those places are kind of a year or two behind a place where like a portland is and i don't mean in the style of food they're maybe even farther behind on that but i just mean in terms of like where this stuff is impacting them so you're seeing a lot of those places. When I was in Oklahoma city, they have the plaza district, which they equate to like their little Austin, which, you know, then they equate to like being like Portland, you know? So it's, it's all kind of the same sort of thing, but the, they're, you know, they're right in where we were maybe two years ago or three years ago, where they're saying, Oh my gosh, look at all this stuff. We just had a ramen shop open and now we've got the, the wood fire pizza place, and now we've got this and that, and so those places are going to see this a couple years down the road. So it 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 doesn't affect everything; won't be affected in the same way. And I think that's important for people to understand. But it will still affect it because the the template and the way that things get built out in the especially in the restaurant industry, it's all similar, and it all and so. The biggest issue in a lot of these places, even the places that have the tip credit, places like Chicago and Denver and New Orleans, is the glut of restaurants, the glut of similar restaurants that are all opening at once. So when you have such a, and I mean, the in the thing I threw out in the uh, story was in San Francisco, where, you know, in 2011, there were 3,600 restaurants in 2012, or sorry, in 2000 Sixteen. There were seventy six hundred. When you just have that many restaurants opening, and you're seeing the same sort of increases in Denver, in Nashville, in Atlanta, like the the glut of restaurants opening just creates this this huge. I mean that that helps create the bubble, but it it's, it's also just if you're the average consumer and you're like, okay, you know, I can go out to dinner maybe once or twice a week you feel, it, it almost becomes this restaurant for sport thing. Oh, where I've always called it the Disneyland a, of
1: food up right? here. It's crazy. And I love and everybody, but I mean how many more n- new restaurants do we actually need?
5: And you don't need any. And right. that's where, I mean, and that's where I think the like, you know, the bubble, like a bubble is never a good thing. And when it bursts, like a lot of good people who've thrown their money into their restaurants, chefs and owners and a lot of people, like, they'll lose those things and it, you can't get those back. But at the same time, there needs to be this market correction. There's just too many restaurants and there's just too many people doing the same thing. And that, I think, needs to be corrected. And it, it, there needs to be, you know, the right number of restaurants for your city. In a place like Portland, I, I'm always astonished with your population density how you can sustain the number of restaurants that you guys have up there.
4: Let Kurt answer yeah, that. I think, well, I thought what was interesting about the article was, and this is not something I really focus on because we're so deep in the belly of just trying to run restaurant businesses, but is this idea of uh, this massive growth in interest about restaurants, which brings in money from you know non-traditional sources for restaurants to open, people being excited about opening restaurants from kind of a vanity investment perspective, the huge explosion of numbers of restaurants. So there's more choice than there's ever been. But also at the same time, this kind of this kind of attention span issue with the number of consumers where, like you touched on in San Francisco, uh, about how people are going to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So there is this, you know, you have a huge growth you also have a a consumer base that's changing and not necessarily looking to, uh, for a place that becomes their regular, but more like a place that they just want to go to the next place after the next place. And so, and I, and I know we're dealing with that and probably have been dealing with that, uh, in in Portland for a while. And, you know, on our side, we just, we manage restaurant. I mean, that is our business. So we're just, we're managing and dealing with that, changing market environment and figuring out how best to survive and thrive in it. And so for us as operators, you know, when you're in a rocky sea, you just adjust, right? And you don't jump out of the boat and you give up. You just keep riding the waves and you try to figure out where there's opportunities and how we do a little bit better and uh, and hopefully the longer you're in the industry you see it better. I mean right now we're just focusing our attention on not going into expensive brand new spaces. But just almost exclusively uh, waiting for spaces uh, that people are trying to get out of, and we've had to do that. And we've had failures. For the most part, we take over our, you know, we rebrand our own failures and and relaunch and try to make a success of it. Um, But you know, right now the places, the projects we're looking at uh, almost exclusively are places that people are trying to get out of, because you know you're going to put in five times less money to reopen. So that, that's the opportunity right now, we think, is just to say, hey, let's just take our foot off the pedal, wait for opportunities to come up. Uh, and then what we're looking to do in those places are exactly the kind of concept that Kevin talked about. We're not looking to do, you know, high-end fine dining. I mean, we're, we're looking to do, uh, we're opening a place uh, on this week called XLB with Jasper Shen. It's a it's a counter-service Chinese restaurant, super Simple, delicious food, very high-end food, but counter service, relatively inexpensive. Um, you know, showy. It's made right in front of you. The the bow, so it's it's great. But man, it's a it's it's a frightening time to think about putting a million dollars into a restaurant. And there's actually a place in in Pearl, right in the heart of commercial Portland, that's supposed to be a Holsteins. It's this very high-end burger concept. And you know, there's problems when that place is just sat empty. For a year and a half with their signs on it it's like what
1: that's a long time yeah you know,
4: why aren't they going in they're paying rent are they paying rent like why so i think you look at national chains and they're petrified to go into these big markets they're not allowed in san francisco now there's this rule about if there's more if you have more than 12 locations you can't go into san francisco proper the city won't let you in there but seattle portland there's a reason there are no national chains going into downtown areas if they have a
1: model but yeah, it just the,
4: does it, and they're like, "What the hell is going on in there?" It's just too much volatility, too many costs. But us independent and, operators are just crazy. We right. just
1: well, too much competition for them. They
4: realize right? that
1: that we don't want to get into right. that.
4: But the paradigm now that you see opening is, you know, a general manager or chef uh, of successful place uh, meets people that thinks that they're superstars, loves how successful <laughs> their current place is, offers to give them all this money to do new place, goes into new place, and. You know, four out of five are going to collapse. and But the money just keeps seeming to be there.
1: Well, and it's here... It wouldn't have happened 10 years ago.
4: Yeah. But the money's now coming
1: back. But I find XLB kind of an interesting case. It encapsulates what you're talking about. That was the third location for Lardo, which was doing very well. And perhaps that was a little aggressive too early. I don't know. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but... And so your own concept is going in there to take the place of a place that wasn't doing as well as its other two locations. Yeah.
4: yeah, and I think we were a little bit too early there. At the end of the day, you know, failure rests on our shoulders. It just didn't, people didn't like it up there. Everybody likes Lardo, so it's just a bummer it didn't work there. I don't un- I don't understand that. Yeah, for... but, you know, shame on us for choosing huh? that location when we chose it. How but... could you have
1: known? How could you have yeah, known? You can't.
4: You can't. But at this point, in this environment right now, I, I only want to go where there's people. I don't want to go to emerging neighborhoods. Why in this kind of market with this much risk? Why would why would you go somewhere where there's not, you know, and there are two very high-end openings in the last year here, places that I think are amazing here in Portland. I think currently the best restaurant in Portland is in kind of these emerging neighborhoods and they're dead. And you just feel like why would you why would you choose to go into a neighborhood where there's just no foot traffic and you just don't think about it because in Portland you just feel like if you build it they will come. And that's just not—it's less and less the case when there's so many choices. Because you'll get it for a little while, but at the end of the day in this market, you need to—you need to be close to all the people that aren't kind of trend eating. You know that aren't. So right. that's the exactly. problem.
1: That's the problem with North Williams because if you look at it, uh, on a just from a layman's perspective, holy shit, there are all these new. there are going to be a lot of new residents here. Yeah. A lot of people need to Well, there's to eat. like
4: there's like two 2000- thousand. You know, uh, there's going to be 2,000 residents that will be there in a year once the buildings are finished. Um, or you have to get there. But the upside is that this concept we're putting up there just happens to have a lot of interest. You know, Lardo was the third one. Maybe that didn't move the needle in terms of public interest. Jasper, it's one of the, the holy trinity, we call it. It's like if you get the Oregonian, the Willamette Week, and Portland Monthly to all write excited stories about you opening, it's like, wow, <laughs> at least from the press perspective, it seems like. There's a lot of people interested. Everybody knows it's going to be awesome. I mean, Jasper's such a great chef, but being awesome is not nearly enough to move the needle these days. If you think you can just open something fantastic and make the best bow anybody's ever had, but in a in the boondoggles, and it's going to be a success, it's just like you're so sorely mistaken.
1: I've also maintained here in Portland. I've said this from the get go, that you know, coming from the New York area where there were. 20 sports teams, or actually, if you look at the major sports, there are a lot. Um, And then I moved out here dying for baseball, Major League Baseball. Didn't happen, and really all we have are the Blazers and the... um, Timbers. The Timbers, yes. Thanks for filling that in. I always need to remember that. (laughs) And,
4: and, you know, in college football, it's exciting. You know, a lot of Ducks fans around here.
1: Right, but there's college football everywhere. But I've always said that our chefs and the coverage they get are are sports celebrities. And I think in other cities... That's harder to make happen because people's attentions are on sports, um, and I think, or the attention of people, I should say, but I think that um, I think here there's that syndrome. I don't know, Kevin. Did you find that celebrity status chef thing pretty prominent elsewhere? And is that fueling a lot of this growth?
5: Yeah, I mean the the sort of rock starification of chefs has obviously been going on for a while now, thanks to television and just the, the obsessive sort of CNN style coverage of food media at this point. Um, but it, it does, it, you know, it happens everywhere at this point where any city that you go into that has the like hot new food town aesthetic where, and you know, the chef is all tatted up and, He's sort of this bad boy, and maybe he has a motorcycle. Um,
1: What's that? I've never the, heard of this.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it's weird. I, I, it's probably really really rare for you guys to see that. Sort yeah, of thing up there. Uh, I have to go but, out and look. <laughs> but the but I think that that's everywhere, you know. And I think I think you made the point that you know when when you aren't focusing as much on sports teams or whatever. But I don't. I, I actually I I disagree but only in the sense that the people who have fo- who have decided to sort of, uh, you know, view these people as gods and celebrities or whatever are, they're not really like, they're not the, the huge sports fan in the same way. They're, they're kind of, that is their sport and you find them in every place now. And it, it really is this like, and I I don't want to give you guys too much credit, but like, I honestly do think that it's people setting up sort of 2006 Portlands in all of these cities. And I think, like, you see all of the trappings of everything that kind of led to Portland being this, like, the golden, sort of the golden child of, like, the new way to eat and drink in America in the mid-aughts, like, all of those trappings and the, and that template and the the chef worship and like, you know, the casual fine dining that literally is everywhere now. And so it, it's just, and, and we can talk about different factors with that, with social media and everything else, but it's honestly, it's, it's crazy. You'll see it. You'll go to Omaha, go to Omaha and there it, and you'll say, like, man, that kind of looks like Portland in 2006. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of nuts.
1: You know, you might have a lot of the chefs that have come out to Portland that are from places like Omaha, or we have a lot of them from Vermont, yeah. right, who would then say, you know what, forget Portland. I'm going back there to do what I do here or there. Maybe we'll see and that going that. on. Yeah.
4: Well, I don't, I mean, I don't have a single partner that uh, is from Portland. And I can't think of a, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of chefs that I know, uh, my best friend Leather Stores is from Portland, but aside from that, I mean, it's, you know, it's a migratory group of people. They, they go somewhere looking for something. Uh, you just think about everybody on the list, you know, they moved here from somewhere. Um, but I agree with Kevin to the extent that I think that I think of, I think of the media attention for food as just being like a new channel on your cable box. And that competes with sports, but it, you know now there is a Food Network. There's Bravo. There is, I think, nationally a certain you know it's like a mini mini celebrity, but it's definitely everywhere. I mean, I think it's it's not just in towns with or without sports teams. It's everywhere. I mean, my sister just moved to South Carolina, and you know even there, it's like you know there's there's just this you know there's now like all of this you know there's Eater, there's Thrillist to a certain extent. There's, you know, all of these, all this online coverage, radio coverage, you know, cable TV coverage that's created a mini interest on the national level with food and celebrity and what's happening. I think it's great in terms of the eating habits of Americans, because I would hope that it's made us much more aware of what we're eating and how we're eating and the quality of what we're eating. But, you know, for the restaurant, for what it means long term, it's going to be really interesting to to see because it creates a lot of chaos and a lot of totally unrealistic expectations with young with young kids coming into the industry thinking that this is just one step away from being on bravo or whatever
1: and that's a big factor right. uh, i think is that um, from what i hear from a lot of chefs we're hearing about we're hearing both sides millennials are don't have the work ethic necessarily i'm not that's not my editorial position it's what i've heard and then i've heard others say well that's not fair to to generalize about millennials, but I mean, it really comes down to the labor pool, and they're going to be mostly younger, right? They're not going to be forty-five-year-old people getting retraining to get into working in kitchens now. So that's that's part of it.
4: Well, Kevin, at some point, needs to write an article about how culinary schools in America have have helped ruin the restaurant uh, industry. It's just I'm
5: I'm on it.
4: It's such a it's such a fiasco. Uh, these you know these places and now they're closing, right? So many of them, but these places that give kids a lot of, you know, important skills, but also charge them a fortune. They come out owing 60, 80 grand a year and then they come to our kitchens and you
1: can't pay that back ever. Yeah. You just won't. How are
4: you going to, and we don't, they actually don't know how to do anything better at the (laughs) entry role than somebody who didn't go to culinary school. Now they know a lot more. You know, you can ask them to make a sauce and they should know how to make it. But you're not being asked to be creative when you walk into a craft. It's not an art, you know, project, the restaurant. It's a craft. You sit down and you're going to be very good at doing this thing over and over and over and over again, and you have to be good at it and precise, and then and you have to be good at working with teams and you have to be good at getting shouted at and you have to be good at stress management. And unfortunately, Culinary schools don't teach you how to do any of that. And so you end up with these kids that just can't actually work for us in general because they're just they're burdened with debt. And how are you supposed to, you know, we're paying way above minimum wage. You can't hire a cook anymore for less than 13, 14 an hour, right? So, you know, 9 whatever, 10 dollars an hour. No, you can't hire a cook for that. You can't even hire a dishwasher for that.
1: Well, but even at 13 or 14 an hour, that's a very tough wage to pay back 60,000 in debt. It's going to take a long it? time. Yeah, plus
4: rent is just not going to work, so they end up having to go somewhere else. And that's something that Kevin touched on that I thought was interesting that's really pulling people out of our industry is that there are parallel industries that are also obsessed with food that want to bring these guys in. And, you know, I, I can't remember the example you gave Kevin, but I thought it was really interesting.
5: Yeah, the uh, I mean in in part 2 of my series when I talked about the the cook shortage, like the all of those facts and, and all of this stuff kind of blends together. But the fact is, these, you know, when during this sort of golden age era of where restaurants are glorified like this, if you were coming out of college during, I, I'm 35, so just like a step back from that was when a lot of people ended up going to law school and not wanting to be lawyers when I was in college. And, it was sort of like, oh God, I need like a, a an extension. <laughs> and then they ended up saddled with these debts from these sort of mid tier schools and, and never paid them back as lawyers. And like you saw this whole cratering of that like second, third tier law schools um, during kind of the mid 2000s. And this is the same sort of thing that you're seeing nowadays with these cooking schools, because, but to a much sort of crazier extent, because as Kurt says, you know, you don't need the skills from the cooking school to become a cook. Like, you need to cook, period. And so that's why I, I, I agree with him. I, I think that that sort of thing is, is kind of ridiculous. And um, I just I, I hope that more and more people will realize that, you know, they, you, can't, you can't kind of exist. On uh, having being saddled with this debt, and you you can't come out of these things hoping for that job like the cool job that's going to get you on top chef and and I think one of the other things that Kurt mentioned was that you know they're cherry picking like these guys have a false sense of confidence because maybe you'll get a good job as like you know second or third in line at. Uh, one of these really good restaurants. And then some person, I mean, here it's like the tech investor who just wants to open a restaurant basically looks at like the masthead of the chefs and is like, okay, I can get this guy, pulls you out. You've maybe worked like two years on the line at like a good restaurant, and now you're supposed to know how to manage a kitchen. You're supposed to know how to buy, like you're supposed to know how to do all of these things that aren't even in your skill set, even if you're actually technically a good cook. And that's why you see a lot of those places with like, where they say, oh, there's the, the you know, the 25-year-old chef, and they try and say that he's like a phenom. <laughs> but the, the fact of the matter is like, you don't have the experience. You don't know how to run a kitchen. You don't know how to manage people. Your place is going down. I think uh, Kurt has talked about that before.
4: Yeah, phenoms. I mean, give me a break. It's just like <laughs> you know, it's just it, it's a craft. It takes ten thousand hours to know, have any clue what you're doing. Um, we we've worked with young people in the past. We'll never we'll never do it in a, again. What's you know, the
1: math on ten thousand hours? How many years is that? Uh,
4: I don't know on a you know a standard eighty hour work week for a cook. I just do them. Do the eighty hour there.
1: work week. Okay, that's that's pleasant.
4: Yeah, but I mean, that's right. That's the that. You know, when we meet partners, when we talk to partners about, you know, wanting to do a project together, we met with Jasper, for instance, with XLB. My first question is, you know, what do you, what's your ambition here? Is this, and if at any point he says, "Oh, I want a work-life balance," it's like, yeah, we're not interested. This is not a work-life balance industry. You know, this is a hard industry, and you have to basically bust your ass to to make it. And if you think you're going to be able to uh, you know, go fishing uh, every Thursday, Friday. Like you'd be the most talented person in the world, and there are examples of chefs like that in Portland. But long term, you're not going to survive, and then in, in the restaurant, it's not going to survive. You know, the best chefs are all of a certain type of personality, and uh, you know they're they're hard, hard workers, and and they're relentless. So, you know, that's just that's and just I what think it is. that's
1: something that's inherent. You know, I've always pointed to Vitaly and say, how does how did he want to open Headwaters and I've I've thought doesn't he want some time to travel or spend with Kimberly but in fact that's his personality he loves to work he he loves to work and he loves what he does and he's you know he's got a different and it's very
4: gratifying you know I love it I love it's like I don't I I look forward to weekends because I can get more done you know I don't I don't see any fun in just like I don't want to sit on a beach it's just just, I'll go stir crazy you know I want to get stuff done I want to you know, I want to help out my partners. Like I want to, you know, we want to, we want to, we want to provide awesome experiences to people. And that's, that's a gratification. But, you know, just to but, come back to the restaurant thing again, I, my feeling is what to address these problems that, you know, that we've, that we've spoken to outside of the bubble is as, a, as an industry, we've got to figure out how to pay cooks more. You know, that is the number one problem we have to figure out. Um, and at least
1: it's been identified now. I I don't rem- I don't recall anybody discussing this right in a big way th- two three four years ago. So now well, it's on the yeah. Forefront. Well,
4: we when we opened Loyal Legion and that was a place we did without uh, tipping at the beginning. The whole idea was to start everybody at fifteen an hour. Just figure out a way. And the bottom line is, you know, for us for us to be competitive and to hire the people we need, um, and we're now uh, we're now in our group doing a little bit of. Uh, uh, restaurant consulting with uh, hotels with management agreements and the thing i tell them is look you've got to be able to start your guys out at 15 an hour to staff it to be stable and you know so on our in our pnls we've got to figure out how to get the chefs up you know i think i think 16 to 18 an hour is the number we need to be at to bring new talent in to bring kids in to allow them to survive to be to be dynamic if we're going to save the the type of dining that kevin was talking about which is the sit-down, ambitious, you know, but not too expensive dining because you just can't. If you don't have the cooks, you can't do anything. Are you optimistic about that? Uh, it's it's hard, especially in the context of having to pay all your servers fifteen dollars an hour. You know, when they're already making you know twenty to fifty dollars an hour in tips. You know, that's hard. Uh, so that's why I think when Ken was talking about tip credit, I think I'm very envious of the forty-three states. Uh, in the country that uh, are able to pay their servers between or are able to count their tips towards their wages down to a, a level. But, you know, in Denver, uh, where Bamboo Sushi just went, he's paying four fifty an hour on his front of house. Uh, you know, I'm paying 10 So, uh, you know, can you imagine how much more I could pay my cooks if we had an extra $6, $6 an hour, an hour yeah. uh, for half of my staff? I mean, it would really change it. And for people that don't reallocate that money, the to the back of house staff you know then they're not looking at the big picture
1: do you foresee uh do, or do you think maybe there needs to be a better political action group to lobby for these changes in oregon i'm I, i'm not really knowledgeable about who's yeah, i no, and i what's don't going i don't think on.
4: it's ever going to happen just because tip credit here in oregon is is really kind of a a taboo uh, within it's like, the uh, it's hosti- like
1: someone pumping their own gas. It's well, it's within the union.
4: Things. Within the union world, especially at the hotel level, the unions are violently opposed to to tip credit, and and I don't quite understand everything. I just know that it's at one point it almost passed, but it's just it's one of those things that's been grabbed on to, and w- we'll probably never get it. Um, so we just need to work uh, under with understanding that we won't have it, you know, and we'll just we'll just do better and. We're going to figure out a way. What we're doing now, for instance, is just asking our servers to uh, tip out more than they did in the past, and the hope is that uh, they'll do it. You know, we can't mandate it, right? That's and, where the you know, law is. it's where the mandating law is. It. But uh, they can
1: voluntarily do it.
4: Absolutely. And we we find that servers, for the most part, are are very generous because they understand that uh, you know the better staff we have in the kitchen, the more <laughs> the faster they get the food, the more money they make.
1: Right. So, Kevin, are you finding uh, optimism, when you were out talking to people, do you find any optimism or is, are we in a pessimistic period right now?
5: I, I mean, I think we're in a pessimistic period, but I think there's optimism that once this the market kind of corrects itself, that and especially in bad economic times, chefs and people in this industry, tend. that's when they tend to be the most creative. That's when you actually see the most dynamic food and it's almost like people don't care anymore. Like they're like, well, screw it. We're just going to like do what we want. And you saw that sort of during the food truck revolution in 2008. So where I'm optimistic, where a lot of people are optimistic is, you know, it'll get a lot of people who frankly don't belong in the restaurant business out because sort of anyone who's pretending will be found out and they'll be wiped out. And so you'll have professionals like Kurt who are better able to address the needs of, you know, the, uh, people dining, but you'll also see, I think, um, as the, you know, as the market corrects itself and as rents go down and there are just less and less restaurants that you'll see more dynamic things. You'll see more creativity and hopefully, uh, We'll see like a whole new sort of revolution, but I think we're we're a little ways away. We kind of have to let the air out of the bubble first.
4: But what we will see between now and then is what uh, some Portlanders hate, which is called counter service. Just get used <laughs> to it, because okay, and we've started moving in that direction. You stand up, you go to the bar, you order your thing, you go you know you go sit down, and the food comes to you. But those are going to be that's the number one growth segment right now that we see in portland is you've got to figure out how to cut all your labor so provide a great product but where the guest is is participating in a way that feels cool but man some people hate counter service um but
1: but you're saying <laughs> get used to it get used and, to it and and that's the only way the food is going to be less expensive yeah other than that it's the only way more that more. the food stays the same
4: price the Not same less price expensive. yeah well no, i meant
1: less expensive than it could yeah. be. But, um, well, listen, I have a feeling this isn't going to be... I know this is not the last we're going to want to talk about this. So, Kevin, I hope you'll join us sometime down the pike. Um, to And yeah, I'm sure you're going to have new adventures, and, and you're going to be writing about new things. We'd love to have you back on. Kurt, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Kurt Huffman. Kevin, how do you find you? Do you like people tweeting you?
5: It's a, they can tweet me at KAlexander03. Um, and... I'll just I'll just preempt it here and say that uh, my next big story is I'm I'm trying to dig into the whole tip credit tipping bubble so uh expect some expect some quotes from Kurt in that story
1: great and we encourage people to go back and listen to our interview with Greg Denton last year Scott dolich and Andy Fortgang in particular we touch on it in a lot of podcasts but um, it's been an issue that obviously is very important, and it's going to continue to be. So we'll look forward to your article, and again, uh, look forward to chatting with, chatting with you again sometime, Kevin. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Kurt, for coming in. Appreciate it. Tough day, tough day. I'm going to say one last thing, if I don't say it. Get out and spend more money than you normally would have at our Portland restaurants right now, because they have endured hell. And one day of closing affects a whole month, so they've they've been closed a lot. Well, restaurants
4: and retail, just right. it's just been a disaster. You know, the last five days, I mean, it's really been it's really been a bummer. And uh, and I know of restaurants that have reached out to me during this period, just saying they're not going to make payroll. I mean, it's a it's a it's a mini crisis. So do what you can, help as much as you can, and by the way, while
1: you're helping, you're eating. You're eating wonderful food. So um, thanks very much.
2: Right at the Fork is supported by PortlandFoodAndDrink.com. The legendary Food Dude dishes up Portland food news and comprehensive guides to just about everything that has to do with food in Portland. From coffee and wine shops to bakeries and more. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Intro music by Arielle Varinis. Find links to her music in the show notes section. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com.